Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast journeying beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. Welcome to Anthology. Welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction, anthology storytelling during television's golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Uh, Each podcast, I take two episodes of The Twilight Zone, give a summary of the plot, share notable cast and crew trivia, and then delve into my feelings on the episode as a first-time viewer of the show. Uh, You can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, message me at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 317-762-6099. Today I'll be discussing episodes 9 and 10 of The Twilight Zone's first season. Uh, But first I want to apologize give a couple of apologies. Um, first of all, I know it's been a couple of weeks since I've posted an episode of this podcast. Uh, real life kind of got in the way. I've been looking for a new job and between updating the resume and applying and interviewing and all that stuff, I've just been kind of, kind of busy and it's kind of gotten in the way. So I apologize for the lack of an episode and, uh, I'm looking forward to catching back up and getting back on schedule. And also last episode I made the, uh, I mistook Judgment Night for a time travel episode because it had been a while since I'd seen the episode. So forgive me for that. And uh, also, before I get started, um, thank you for all the awesome emails and tweets and Facebook posts and uh, iTunes reviews. It's helped out a lot, and it's really great to know that people are listening to it and people are, for the most part, enjoying the show. Um so, that, so I'm definitely going to be getting some more content out to you guys. And keep the, keep the feedback coming and keep the conversation coming. I really enjoy it. And I'm trying to get <laughs> – I have on my, my, uh, my dry erase board, I have like a, a goal uh, for saving money to get the Blu-ray set for The Twilight Zone. Uh, one of the listeners uh, emailed me and, and recommended it. And it's ever since then I've just been really – really wanting to get that that blu-ray set for the complete series so uh hopefully when that happens i'll I'll get more more detail and and uh more trivia out of it uh but anyway so this week i'm talking about episodes nine and ten as i said before uh perchance to dream and judgment night uh both of these episodes focus on frantic men trying to stay alive in the face of certain but confusing death uh in the twilight zone so without further ado, here here we go. 12 o'clock noon. An ordinary scene, an ordinary city. Lunchtime for thousands of ordinary people. To most of them, this hour will be a rest, a pleasant break in the day's routine. To most, but not all. To Edward Hall, time is an enemy. And the hour to come is a matter of life and death. All right, so first up we have Perchance to Dream. Uh, this episode aired on November 27th, 1959. And as always, I'm going to start out with a summary of the plot uh, from the Twilight Zone Companion by Marcus Agree. Uh, of course, this will be spoiler, spoiler heavy, so make sure you watch the episode before you listen to this episode of the podcast. 
Hall, a man with a cardiac condition, has sought out the aid of Dr. Rathman, a psychiatrist. He explains that he's been dreaming in chapters as if in a movie serial. In his dream, Maya, a carnival dancer, lures him into a funhouse and onto a roller coaster with the express intention of scaring him to death. If he goes to sleep, he, he knows he'll return to the dream and will have a fatal heart attack. On the other hand, if he stays awake much longer, the strain will be too much for his heart. Realizing that Rathman can't help him, he starts to go, but stops when he realizes that the doctor's receptionist is a dead ringer for the girl in his dream. Terrified, he runs back into Rathman's office and jumps out the window to his death. The doctor calls his receptionist into his office, where Hall lies on the couch, his eyes closed. Rathman tells the receptionist that Hall came in, lay down, immediately fell asleep, and then a few minutes later let out a scream and died. Starring in this episode is uh, Richard Conti as Edward Hall. Uh, he was an actor known for his normal everyman appearance. Uh, he has kind of a Justin, Le- Justin Long thing going for him, at least I found. Often worked in noir movies, but his most notable role was as Don Barzini in The Godfather. I think he actually auditioned for the role of uh, Vito Corleone, but they decided to go with Marlon Brando. The Godfather actually was released three years before uh, Richard Conti's death from a heart attack. He also appeared in the original Ocean's Eleven and Call Northside 777 uh, opposite Jimmy Stewart. That's a movie that I'd actually really, really like to see. Uh, that's on on my list of extracurricular viewing for this podcast, I guess. This is Richard Conti's only appearance on The Twilight Zone. Playing the psychiatrist in this episode, Dr. Rathman, is John Larch. This is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. He's a very notable character actor who appeared in Play Misty for Me, Dirty Harry, the Amityville Horror, and many other other, uh, movies. Uh, Before he became an actor, he was a professional baseball player. And since this is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes, I'll probably go into more detail about him in a later episode of Anthology. But I think that's some interesting bit of trivia for him. And rounding out the cast in this episode is Suzanne Lloyd, who played Maya and Miss Thomas, the receptionist. Um, I'll I'll just go ahead and say she's jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Like, seriously. Um, this, This episode was just really... She was very mesmerizing in this episode. Um... Her last acting job was in 1974. I'm not sure if she's still alive or working or anything like that. Um, IMDb is kind of vague on that, and it doesn't list a doesn't only list a birth date on it. Um, this was her only episode of The Twilight Zone, and she appeared in one episode of Alcoa Presents One Step Beyond, which was a uh, uh, science fiction anthology show. If I'm not mistaken, um, I believe One Step Beyond was focused on taking real world. Um, stories and 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 going supernatural with them or, or something like that um i think there are some episodes available on hulu um i may eventually cover that show down the road i mean we're talking years from now <laughs> after i finish twilight zone and the, the uh the outer limits and probably a couple other shows that are um that i'll probably cover after that but I mean, who knows maybe one day i'll be covering one step beyond and i will uh be seeing suzanne lloyd again uh, but yeah, this was her only episode of the Twilight Zone, so I would say that she she rocked it pretty well. This was the introduction of Charles Beaumont as a writer for the Twilight Zone. Uh, he was the single like most important creative force in in the early years of the show, aside from Rod Serling himself. Uh, this episode was adapted from Charles Beaumont's original story that was first published in Playboy in November 1958. 
I'm not sure what kind of uh, what differences there are between the two uh, story between the story and the adaptation. I didn't get a chance to read the actual um, story. I think that it was a, I think that it was published in a couple of collections that he wrote, but I don't think they're in print anymore. So I'm not sure how easy it would be to find this particular story, but. We live in the age of the internet and everything, so I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Some uh, A little bit of background on Charles Beaumont. This is kind of, I guess th- this is kind of bleak and, and really just tragic. Um, his early death, like, he died He died early. He uh, It was pretty shocking. He suffered from a degenerative aging disease, which gave him uh, the appearance of, a, of, a, of an old man. Uh, very, very young. He was he was 38 years old um, at the time, and it was, I guess, it was speculated that he was suffering from uh, simultaneously suffering from Pick's disease and early onset Alzheimer's. Um, and it's just it, it's just sad. He he was very he was a very prolific writer, um, and he was very successful. Um, but you know, toward when when these medical issues cropped up, it found it virtually uh, impossible for him to work in, in the last three years of his life. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's sad to hear that. It's, it's, I don't know. It, it's really, it's really tragic that someone could, you know, die so young and be in such a position to, um, do such good work for an important television show. It's, I don't know. It's it's tragic. It's it's sad. As for the themes of this episode for of Perchance to Dream, um I didn't I couldn't really pick up on much in terms of, you know, what what it could represent or anything like that. I mean, maybe mental health, uh maybe there's a theme of mental health running through this where where one person is convinced of of a reality that maybe isn't real or is uh or is it's their their mind is constructing a life ending scenario, um, and there's there's no help uh, around for them. I I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm grasping at straws with that, but I don't know. I, it's an entertaining episode, but it's it's hard to find something as uh, clear cut uh, a theme for me as like say the the lonely or time enough at last some other background on charles beaumont though uh this is taken from his imdb page his mentally unstable mother at one time dressed him in girls clothes and killed one of his pets as a form of punishment this later inspired his short story mrs gentle bell uh, he was eventually farmed out to the care of five widowed aunts who operated a boarding house and regaled young Charles with nightly tales detailing the peculiar demise of each of their husbands. Somehow, perhaps unsurprisingly, young Charles developed his macabre sense of humor. So, and, and that kind of dives in, or that kind of uh, leads into this episode being kind of uh, having more of a, hor- a horror um, center to it. Um, and I'll get more into that here in a second, but I will say that I kind of hope that, uh, future episodes written by Mr. Beaumont are, uh, horror leaning as well. Um, that's my hope at least. I have no, I have no context. As I've said at the top of this episode, um, and at the top of the podcast, this is my first time watching the show. So I don't know. Uh, director for this episode is Robert Flory. 
this is his first of three Twilight Zone episodes. He was born in Paris, France in 1900, uh, and he directed a ton of B-movies and was known to bring them in on and on or under budget, despite frequently running over schedule, which sounds like a, a really incredible talent. <laughs> um, he, di- he died in 1979 from cancer, and since this is his first of three episodes, I'll, I'll talk more about his work um, in later episodes of Anthology. But for now, I'm going to go on to my feelings as a viewer uh, toward uh, Perchance to Dream. And, you know, it's it's funny. I When I started this episode, I, I didn't know that it wasn't written by Serling. Um, this is the ninth episode of the series, and up until now, every episode's been written by Rod Serling, and I know that he's written... He wrote the majority of episodes, so I just kind of assumed that it was going to be written by Serling again. And... It wasn't until the end credits when I saw Charles Beaumont's name that I kind of realized, like, why, maybe why I wasn't getting attached to this episode as much as um, previous ones. And I don't know, I just found, I just found Perchance to Dream kind of really hard to get into as an episode. And I, I think that part of that is that maybe subconsciously I kind of noticed that this, that that the the style of writing the the narrative wasn't wasn't the same as the eight previous episodes. And I think that that kind of had a jarring experience in my mind because I went back and rewatched it again um, after I compiled my notes and everything, and it's it got better, but I, I still felt like it's it. I felt like this episode spent a little too much time. Uh, explaining the plot. I mean, Hall goes into Rathman's office, and then he's he's just just divulging all of this exposition toward the psychiatrist, which is fine and it's an entertaining. But I don't know it it it's just so deeply steeped in ambiguity that it's a little bit off putting for me. Like for instance, his monologue about the boat painting. It was some somewhat frustrating to me. It established some sort of mystical power um, that is kind of written off as overactive imagination, but I don't think there's really any follow through on that. I mean, you know, he he goes through this whole this whole monologue where he explains that he even as a kid he could see things move in paintings and things like that, and then once he de- once he developed his rheuma- uh, rheumatic heart disease. It just made it more uh, likely that that it could exacerbate his condition. But I don't know. It kind of seemed like they, there was such an effort, or there's such a an emphasis on the fact that, like, he can, from a young age, he could see things move, move on 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 paintings and stuff. I thought that when I hear that, at least the the way that it's described, I kind of think like, oh, he might have some kind of weird special power or something like that. But there wasn't anything that really followed through on that line of thinking. Um, I did really enjoy just the central concept of the episode, really about about dreams and and um, how how he he dreams in episodes, and the dream world is going to kill him. I, I really enjoy that kind of aspect of the story, and it's kind of funny because I I uh, I can relate to um to the main character talking about dreaming in episodes because one of my one of my most memorable dream 
experiences, I guess, happened when I was in, I think, junior high. Well, I for about a week straight, I dreamed I dreamt every night that I was being chased by Michael Myers, and I was being chased by him in my mom's in the building my mom works at worked at at the time, which ended up being the building that I worked in and currently work in, and it was it was interesting. Um, and I'm talking about my dreams on a podcast, so I apologize for that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's just I can relate to that, and I found I've I've always found the dream world or dreaming. Uh, a fascinating um, landscape for storytelling. Um, I'm recording this a couple weeks after uh, Wes Craven died. And, of course, one of the big uh, big things he leaves behind in his legacy is, is you know, creating Nightmare on Elm Street. And that, while, I, while that movie franchise I never really connected to that much, at a concept level, Nightmare on Elm Street is one of the most interesting uh, movie franchises of all time because it it strikes such a chord with audiences because it it dives into the dream world it makes it's it's the victims of Freddy Krueger are killed while they're dreaming which is which is the most vulnerable uh, that we are is when we're dreaming and I feel like this episode of the Twilight Zone really tapped into that um, if nothing else I mean I, I'm I was a little put off by the pacing and and everything, but I mean, this episode really plays with the the concept of um, the dream world being, you know, our undoing and uh, where we can't control um, we can't control what we dream, and it's a terrifying thought for anyone who um, buys into it, really. And it's it's kind of a I don't know. Like I said, when we sleep, we're at our most vulnerable vulnerable. And that can bring out a lot of uh, horrific thoughts and uh, horrific scenarios. And this is by far the most horror-leaning episode of The Twilight Zone that I've seen so far. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Uh, The dream sequences themselves are really spectacular and eerie. Uh, They're disorienting. They were disorienting, and they utilized tension really well. The amusement park and carnival, whatever you want to call it, is really creepy. And the, the... Seeing the sights and sounds and and being bombarded with that is so so unnerving to me, and especially because um, Edward Hall is really the only the only patron of the amusement park, and I mean, obviously there are probably you know um, there are some budget reasons and, and uh, filming reasons for that because I mean why why. Uh, why hire extras for a dream sequence and all that. But I felt like that really, that really tapped into the eeriness of it is that he's really the only one in this amusement park. And that's, I don't know, it was, it was chilling to me and it made, it really amplified the dreamscape aspect of it. Um, but what I didn't, and so, so all that's all well and good. This episode is aesthetically pleasing. It's very, it's, it, it has a very, uh, unique concept that um, drives itself into fear in a very real way and relatable way. But at the end of the day, I'm just left wondering, why is she trying to kill him? Why is Maya trying to kill Edward Hall? And and I, I just felt like the episode itself was too ambiguous. Um, because you have, like, you, we've had characters die on screen at the end of episodes. We've had, um, like, escape clause. He, he died because, you know... 
he he made a deal with the devil and and he exercised his escape clause for it and stuff like that. Same with one for the angels with Lou Bookman. He had a deal with with death and um, all that. So so we know why characters have died, but this episode just kind of was like. I don't know. It it wasn't fulfilling to me. Like at the end of the episode, Hall sees the receptionist, and then jumps out the window. And then the, then it's revealed that the whole episode was in his dream when he lay down on the uh, futon in in the psychiatrist's office. But I don't know. But like at the end of it, we see the receptionist come in, and she's still Suzanne Suzanne Lloyd. Um, and and she and she and Rathman have a conversation, and then the episode ends on um, Serling's uh, narration. I think it would have probably worked better had the receptionist been Maya, and then when the doctor brought her in in the real world after um, Hall had died, if if it was a different actress, then it would. I don't know. I still probably would have had problems with the ambiguity of it, but I think it would have worked better as a as a distinction between the real world and the dream world, because um, Maya throughout the episode was trying to kill Hall in her dream in his dream. And then could, you know, he couldn't sleep or or he stayed up for, he stayed up for 80 some hours. Uh, But when he walks into the office, he looks at the receptionist before he even goes in and like, he looks long, long and hard at her and doesn't recognize her as, um, as Maya. So I feel like that would have been, it would have been a better, an overall better ending if it was a different actress when she came in to talk to Rathman in the real world, because that would have kind of, kind of put a different, a more unique spin on the dreams that he was having, because it would just show that for whatever reason, um, Maya constructed a new, a new dream for him uh, in order to convince him to, to die, I guess. I, I don't know. I'm grasping at straws here. Overall, the episode was okay. It was well, well shot and, and really engaging on a, on the story story at the basic level of the story, I guess. And, uh, yeah. And I, I just, I just thought it was just okay though. I had, I had some pretty big issues with it and thought that it was, uh, just okay. It's it's not going to be one of the ones that um, I would call my favorite, I don't think, from this season even. Um, definitely not from the show as a whole. I had some issues with it, and I hope that uh, Charles Beaumont's future episodes are uh, better for me. I will say that I did, again, just to reiterate, I did really, really enjoy the kind of horror uh, leaning aspects of this episode. So hopefully I'll get to see more of that in, in future episodes of the Twilight Zone. They say a dream takes only a second or so. And yet in that second, a man can live a lifetime. He can suffer and die. And who's to say, which is the greater reality, the one we know or the one in dreams between heaven, the sky, the earth in the Twilight Zone. And, of course, before we move on to the next episode, here's a highlight from a recent episode of The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast that I host with my friends, Mike and Tiny. How does the memory of Age of Ultron hold up to you guys? Well, I saw it twice. <laughs> how did, how'd that go? I, I sense a little, uh... Uh, you know, I, 
I I loved the spectacle of it both times. Both times I left the theater saying, "Oh, that was awesome," and I and I maybe even liked it better than the first. But when I when I'm looking at the list, it's it's not a movie of the year for me. It's not a. I mean, it'll it'll end up in the top ten, but I I don't know. I'm just like currently not floored by it. I also have to poop a little bit, so I'm not sure. If you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, and at obsessiveviewer.com. Well, the year is 1942, and this particular ship has lost its convoy. It travels alone like an aged, blind thing groping through the unfriendly dark, stalked by unseen periscopes of steel killers. Yes, the Queen of Glasgow is a frightened ship, and she carries with her a premonition of death. Next up is Judgment Night. Uh, this episode aired December 4th, 1959. And here's the summary from the Twilight Zone Companion written by Mark Sickery, which I highly recommend. Again, on board the Glasgow is a German named Carl Lancer. With no memory of how he got there, yet with the feeling that he's met all of the passengers somewhere before. Things are made even more mysterious by Lancer's certainty that an enemy sub is stalking the ship and by his premonition that something is going to happen at 1.15 a.m. His fear proves correct. At 1.15, a U-boat surfaces. Peering through binoculars, Lancer sees that its captain is himself. The U-boat sinks the helpless freighter, then crew members machine gun the survivors. Lancer sinks beneath the waters. Later, on board the sub, a lieutenant suggests they might all face damnation for their action. Capitan Lancer discounts this theory, not realizing that he is, in fact, doomed to relive the sinking of that ship for eternity. Starring in this episode as Carl Lancer is, and I'm, I hope I'm not uh, butchering this pronunciation, but uh, Nehemia Persoff. He was born in 1919 in Jerusalem. He was he was Jewish, and um, which which made him playing a Nazi officer in this episode. Um, interesting. <laughs> uh, he was best known for. Uh, roles in Some Like It Hot, uh, Twins, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ, and he also voiced uh, Papa in An American Tale and its its uh, sequels. Uh, he also played Johnny Torrio in 1959's Al Capone, which was also featured Martin Balsam, who appeared in 16mm Shrine. Uh, he also had a lot of TV credits, mostly kind of one-off appearances. Um, he was in an episode of... Uh, Boris Karloff's anthology show Thriller. He also appeared in The Time Tunnel, Gilligan's Island, Mission Impossible, Mod Squad, Columbo, and a bunch of other stuff. According to his IMDb page, when declining health and high blood pressure forced him to slow down, Persoff took up painting in 1985, studying sketching in Los Angeles. Specializing in watercolor, he has created around 100 works of art, many of which have been exhibited up and down uh, the coast of California. So that's that's interesting. That that's that's nice to know. That's that's a nice thing to know that um, that he found something to be passionate about after uh, he was unable to act anymore. I guess uh, this is the only episode of the Twilight Zone that he appears in, and it's I must say, but I'll get into it in a bit. But his performance in this episode is just haunting. It's really really great stuff, and it's 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 a shame that this is his only episode of the Twilight Zone, but. I mean, what an episode. He gave a really great performance in it. Uh, writer for this episode is, again, uh, Rod Serling. 
And given the subject matter of this episode, I have to wonder if it's if it was a, a way for Serling to kind of work through some of the atrocities that he saw in the war. Um, There's a very overt kind of theme of, of being punished for things that you do in war. And it, it makes a powerful statement about, you know, damnation and, and you know, being punished for eternity. Uh, director for this episode is John Brom. This is his second of 12 episodes. He directed more episodes of The Twilight Zone than any other director uh, did. And I, I really loved the direction in this movie or in this episode. Um, it was the shots of the ship. Uh, like, the, like obviously, the, the exterior shots of the ship are must be stock footage. Uh, the names on the ship are actually different. But the shots on the sets just matched the murky atmosphere of the establishing shots so well that it's it's nearly seamless. It, the, there was such a high production value with this episode. And I think John, John Brom really... Uh, really did a, a really great job bringing it to life and bringing this episode to life. So as for my feelings as a viewer on this episode, I really, really liked it. I, um, I, I mistakenly referred to it as a time travel episode last, uh, in last, uh, the last episode of anthology, but it's not, it's, it's, you know, he, uh, he wakes up or he becomes aware that he's on the ship and it's, it's kind of an amnesia story. And then it turns into a story about um, him being haunted by his haunted for eternity every night aboard the ship that he just destroyed. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really, really powerful stuff. And the production value, like I mentioned, when I talked about John Brom, it's, it's really, really spectacular. Um, the sets that they used were from the wreck of the Mary Deer, which was a movie that starred, uh, 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 Charlton Heston and Gary Cooper, I think, uh, that had actually just, uh, finished, that had just finished, uh, filming, uh, at the time of this episode. So, you know, the, there was some, they had the sets. There's, there's an effect and I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know if this is like standard for, you know, ships or anything like that of the time, or if this is a, or if this was a, uh, an effect that was utilized for the production itself and for, you know, the atmosphere of the episode. But when, when Carl Lanzer goes into the, the, I guess, dining room area, uh, every time the door opens, the lights go out and it gives kind of a, it gives kind of a real like theatrical feel like it, it feels like it's a stage play and that this is, this kind of effect is something that you would see in theater. And I thought that really, really helped sell the, it really helped uh, demonstrate the power of this, this kind of single character focused narrative. Like he's like Carl Lanzer is the star of the show. Like he's, he's the star of the episode. He, it's his performance that really brings home uh, the message and, and the horror of, of the episode really. And I think that having like little touches like that, like the lights going out when the door opens, if, uh, for whatever reason, I think that that really helps, really helps increase the, the, uh, the oddness of, of the episode and, and the kind of, um, confused and strange, strange feelings that, Carl has throughout the throughout the episode. Another point to mention is I really love the music in this episode. Um, it's just it's 
Okay, it, this is a this is an episode that kind of fires on all cylinders. Like everything is going on at once, or every, everything is working well all at once, and there's not really a weak link in it. And the standout of the episode is the performance. Like, like I said, I mean, uh, Persoff's performance is just incredible and incredibly haunting. Also, it's like you can tell that there's something in it. There's something to him that the viewer doesn't know, doesn't know yet. Um, and he certainly doesn't know, but there, it's just, it gives this, this tense feeling as you watch it, well, as he slowly discovers what, what is going to happen and, and what his fate is. I, or, or yeah, once, once the, once the U-boat appears, but before that, the actual scene where he discovers that he is, that he is a captain of a U-boat, um, it just, it really ramps up the surrealistic tone of the story, like the, the kind of drama of the story and, and that he's, that he's as confused as we are is just like that. That's such a nice twist at the end, at the, at, at the middle point of the episode. It kind of feels like a kind of twist that you would almost, I don't know if it would really fit at the end of an episode, but it's like that level of twist, like, Oh, he was a, he was a Nazi the whole time. And, like that kind of thing could could really carry a bit of weight to the end of an episode, but here it's right in the middle, and it ushers in our uh, really incredible um, uh, final act for, for this episode. I mean, when he goes crazy and starts screaming that there's a U-boat after the clock hits one fifteen, uh, but he notices that everyone's gone, and there's that really haunting again, that really haunting scene or that really haunting shot. Um, and I, and I say again because this is another time where the Twilight Zone utilizes mirrors. Um, I believe it was a mirror. It may have just been a window now that I think about it. But some any any type of glass really. <laughs> uh, when he sees the when he sees kind of like a portrait of the of the uh, passengers and then they disappear. It's just it's so so gripping and so so haunting. It it was just I don't know. It it really stuck with me. And then again the incredible production value once once the fire and destruction happens, it's, it's, it was amazing to me that television could, could really show this type of, this type of violence really on, on screen at, at that time back in 1959. Cause like there's a scene where, um, uh, one of the passengers is, it's not, she's not engulfed in flames, but I mean, you know, she's surrounded by flames and then, and then the camera cuts away from it. So, you know, your your mind can kind of you know fill in the blanks there, but it's it's just a very kind of traumatic um, imagery in this episode, and it it seamlessly incorporated uh, authentic U boat crew footage for those scenes actually, and I don't know like that that really I think that if they would have skimped on that on that aspect of it, then the episode wouldn't have worked as well as it did for me. And I really appreciated that. And I thought that it was really terrific how they did that. And especially calling back with the, uh, the little girls, uh, little doll floating in the water. That's just like that, that, that type of, um, imagery is kind of a cliche at this point. Like, like it's kind of a cliche now to say like, Oh, you know, a callback, a visual callback such as that to show the tragedy of a young girl dying, um, it's it. I feel like I've seen it before, in in many other things, but seeing it in this episode in this context is really really worked for me. Finally, at the end of the episode, when uh, Lancer is is back on the back on the U boat, he's he's not aware of 
I think that according to Mark Sacre's, um summary of the episode, he's not really – he doesn't seem like he – it almost feels like a flashback, like he's not aware of it. I think it takes place in the same kind of universe, I, I guess. It's it's an interesting – it's it's kind of interesting and a little confusing because, I mean, Lancer is on, on the ship and then he sees himself as the captain of the U-boat and then – by the end of the episode, you're led to believe, like, you know, he's going to repeat, the, or you're told, really, that he's going to be, be repeating that same that same scenario over and over for all eternity every night. And that, that just makes you, that boggles the mind a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so in, in this context, when, when he's talking to Mueller, he's, uh, he's unaware of, you know, his impending damnation. And I think that uh, Mueller's... Uh, description of their damnation is maybe what sparks this for Lancer and ushers in, you know, night after night of this, of this hell. But I think that it's interesting to see, it's an interesting concept and it's, uh, to hear Mueller describing their damnation with such an awful, uh, awful German accent. Like he, he barely even, I think the actor doesn't really seem to be capable of, uh, German accent and it kind of jumps in and out of it, but never, nevertheless, that the button that it puts on this episode as a whole um, by describing the damnation and, and you know hell that these men are uh, faced with are going to be faced with is is just really powerful. And then and then the final pin is is Serling's closing narration. So this episode was really good. I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I'm, I know I'm a little uh, all over the place here, but I, I really did enjoy this episode, and I thought that production value alone is just impeccable. It, it's really amazing. Um, yeah, there's not really much to criticize about except for, you know, the accent. But, uh, yeah, a very solid episode. We'll see how it stacks up at the end of this, this season of The Twilight Zone, really, in terms of my favorite episodes. But, um Overall, I'd say that I, I really enjoyed it. The SS Queen of Glasgow heading for New York, and the time is 1942. For one man, it is always 1942. Light in the salon. Let's black out down there. And this man will ride the ghost of that ship every night for eternity. This is what is meant by paying the fiddler. This is the comeuppance awaiting every man when the ledger of his life is opened and examined, the tally made and then the reward or the penalty paid. And in the case of Karl Lancer, former Kapitän Leutnant, Navy of the Third Reich, this is the penalty. This is the justice meted out. This is judgment night in the Twilight Zone. I will say, uh, as a quick bit of trivia before we close out this episode, um, this episode was the only time that the Twilight Zone was censored. And this is a fun bit of trivia that uh, when the passengers are all were are all in the ship and they're they're drinking coffee, it was originally going to be that they were going to order tea since uh, you know it's a British ship and British people drink tea. Um, but it was changed to coffee because the sponsor for this episode was General Foods, who uh, were sponsoring the episode with commercials for Sinka Coffee, and they felt that. Uh, they felt that tea was a competitor for coffee, <laughs> and uh, they they uh, 
got they got them to change it. But this is the only episode to have a uh, bit of censorship like that. So I know that that was a big, a big, big, big issue for uh, Rod Serling going in. And it's one of the reasons why he started doing The Twilight Zone was because he was getting censored and uh, all of his other work, really. And he felt that diving into science fiction uh, would give him the ability not to be censored. And, yeah, it shows because this is the only episode that was censored, according to the Twilight Zone companion. Um, all right. So that should just about do it for this this episode of Anthology. I will have a new episode up for you soon. I don't know when. I, I'm Like I said, I'm kind of busy. But I'm trying to keep to a schedule, and I will be hopefully, if I can, um, maybe, doing, maybe doing two a week uh, soon to get back on my schedule. Um, but we'll see. Uh, but once again, thank you for listening and, uh, keep, you know, giving me iTunes reviews, emails, Facebook comments, all that stuff, uh, tweets, all that stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really digging hearing back from you guys. And if you want to, let me know what you think about the next episodes I'm going to be reviewing. Uh, next, next time on anthology, I'll be covering episodes 11 and 12 of Twilight Zone's first season. Uh, those episodes are, and when the sky was opened and what you need. So go ahead and send me your emails, uh, tweets, all that stuff with your thoughts on those episodes and I'll include them in the, I'll include it in the episode of anthology for now. Uh, thanks again for listening and I'll try to get back. I'll try to get back on a normal schedule. (laughs) Um, until, until next time, uh, have a good one. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find past episodes of the show at AnthologyPod.com. And please subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. It helps the show out more than you might think. Of course, I crave feedback or conversation of any kind from the audience, so please email your thoughts and feelings about the show to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or you can tweet me at Obsessive Viewer and make sure you like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthology pod. Of course, you can also leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Tiny and Mike. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at obsessiveviewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. You can find all of that at obsessiveviewer.com. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessiveviewer. And check out obsessivebooknerd.com for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Join the Obsessive Viewer podcast on October 16th, 2015 at the Irving Theater in Indianapolis for The Obsessive Viewer presents Shocktober in Irvington Part 2. 
It's a one-night event screening of short horror films from local artists J.P. Leck and Synapshot Productions. There will be giveaways, raffles, interviews with the filmmakers, and so much more. All proceeds will go directly to the Irvington Historical Society. Go to shocktoberinirvington.com for more details. And prepare to be shocked. <laughs>